Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, I am your host, and today's episode will get us into the topic of education. We'll start off in the Middle Ages and go from there and probably wrap things up just between two episodes. This one and the next is my guess at least. And then we move on to either economics or theology. I'm not sure which one yet, but that is the rough game plan here. So let's go ahead and start off with the first thing. And uh, to me, this is one of the things that marks a shift that happened during the time of the Middle Ages, and that would be the Black Death that came through. It really shook things up in a very big way and had a huge impact on society. We are not going to focus on much of that, but just one aspect here. And that would be that at that time period in that culture, in that society of Western Europe, when the plague hit, the church is where everybody turned for answers. It always had been that way, and it always was that way, and it was that way at this point in time. And so when the plague came through, People looked to the church for what to do or why this was happening or why it was affecting this person and not that person. How do we stop this from spreading? How do I stop from catching it myself? These types of questions, very obvious questions. But unfortunately, the church didn't really have answers for this. They, they did have some answers, but none of them really seemed to pan out. None of them really seemed to work. And worse than that, even priests were coming down with the sickness. Even people that were going into the churches would catch it. And so it didn't seem like the church really had the answers or the power or the authority in the mind of the commoners to deal with this pandemic that was spreading through society. And that was something that was a big shock to people. This was new. This was something that kind of rocked their world because from their perspective, the church always had an answer. They always knew why things were happening. They could always tell you the reasons, the causes, the effects, how you prevent something, how you make something happen, all of these things. The church was the place to go for all knowledge. And at this point in time, the church was kind of failing in this. They didn't have the answers. And so what people began to do is search for other sources of knowledge and answers in other places. One of those places was Greek and Roman knowledge. So historically, there were other people and other societies that have dealt with things like sickness and disease and health and all of these types of things. And so these were sources that were sought out. People were desperate. They looked all over the place. And the key point here is that the church, which was the bedrock of society in that time period, was not 
providing satisfaction in this area. That is the key. And so with that, it's almost like there were some cracks in the system that were starting to appear. This is way before the Reformation took place. But again, you can see kind of some cracks that were that were there, that were obvious. There were issues that were starting to pop up here and there, but they were pretty big issues. You can't just look past that. If the church has all the answers and they don't have an answer to the biggest thing to happen in all of modern history for you at that time period, then that's a pretty big deal. Another issue that was happening around this time and the time thereafter was that people were noticing some corruption in the church as well. And we've definitely touched on this in regards to the Reformation, but this was happening long before that. I have mentioned before that when the Roman Empire fell, the church already had a system in place. They had a hierarchy, they had land, they had wealth, they had the trust of the people. And so as people turned from this formal Roman government that was the end-all be-all of society, the church was the one that stepped up and filled a lot of the gaps that were existing in society at the time. And with this, the church started to be more and more wealthy, to gain more and more lands, to have more and more influence in society. And as you see the pattern throughout all of history, when things like this happen and you see a concentration of power, concentration of wealth, centralization, these types of things, corruption inevitably starts to sink in. And that did happen within the church with the priests, with the bishops. It even went to the level of the popes. And this was something that the commoners could start to see very early on. Again, there were cracks in the system. They might notice some things about even just their local parish leader, or they may hear some unsavory rumors about the Pope, things like this. And so again, there's these cracks in the system. The people of the Middle Ages largely could read at least a lot more than you would think. There was literacy there. People could read things, and they needed to for things like prayer books that were very important, or even just household management. You would have to have a basic level of reading to be able to do that pretty well. And so reading itself was something that wasn't exclusive only to the top tier of society. There were plenty of commoners that could read, but not nearly as many could write. And in addition to this, their scope of knowledge was also very limited. So while they may be able to read words and do some basic reading and have some basic things, like prayer books is um, a very common example, they did not have a library full of books of philosophy or economics or complicated math or anything like that. Their scope of knowledge was very small. Their reading proficiency was likely very small, and most of them could probably not write themselves. So if we look back to the trivium, the idea of grammar logic rhetoric, they had the grammar down as far as knowledge is concerned, and even as far as literacy is concerned, and they might have a little bit of the logic in some areas, but definitely not getting into the rhetoric category of really being able to apply that information and that knowledge and put it to good use, put all the pieces together. They just didn't have the information. They didn't have access to it. So this was a bit of an issue because even though many could get some information, they couldn't necessarily get anything to the degree that occurred when we had the printing press come out many years down the road. 
if we overlap these things onto the modern parallels I'm making, this is the time period of the Middle Ages, which took place, obviously, before the Reformation time period. I am comparing our current time period to the Reformation. And so if we're talking about prior to that, then the modern parallel would be prior as well. It would be modern historical events that happened that would line up with these things. And I've mentioned this example multiple times in the past, but the anti-establishment movements of the 60s and the 70s are very similar to these aspects that I've mentioned here. There were definitely cracks in the system that were revealed in the 60s and 70s when people could see that there was definitely corruption within the state. Many knew that there were lies that were being told, that politicians were not necessarily looking out for their best interest, lots of things of this nature. But they did have limited information. Again, they had a limited scope of knowledge. It's not like today where you have the internet and you have access to just about anything and everything you would ever want to get your hands on. Even if a document was declassified in the 60s, it still would have been kind of hard to get your hands on it and read it and assess it and study it and then get that information out there to a lot of people. Whereas today, you can just do a quick search on Google, pull it up, read the source document itself and post it on Facebook and a thousand people see it. Like That's not all that hard to do nowadays, but that would have been very hard to do back in that time period. And the same would be true during the Middle Ages. If someone knew that somehow they walked in on the Pope doing something unsavory and and they knew it. They had this information that the Pope was corrupt and had engaged in this specific act. Well, it would be difficult to get that out there to everyone and to have concrete evidence. You probably wouldn't be believed. And even if you were believed, it would probably just be by the people you knew very well. And they might consider you an honest person, trustworthy. They knew you had gone to a certain place and that the Pope was there. So they might believe your story. But again, it doesn't get out there nearly as much as when you could write a pamphlet and it got printed off on these printing presses and passed from town to town. Again, huge difference there. And right now, during the Middle Ages, as well as during the 60s and 70s, it is more of this concept of cracks in the system that are starting to appear. These ideas, these movements, these questions, they're not brand new to our time, nor were they brand new to the Reformation time period. You could see the trends starting to build, and you saw small pieces of this taking place. But again, the rest of the pieces weren't fitting in quite yet. The time had not come for all of these things to mesh together in order to form the major movement that was the Reformation. But time would come for all that. Now, the next thing I want to get into with education is some of the shifts that were going on with the merchant class and the knights of that time period. So within the hierarchy, you did have local knights, and they often didn't have anything special with their birth or their rank. Usually, they were a servant to a local lord who owned land, and in exchange for military service and their expertise, the lord would grant them a small, relatively small property, and so they could manage and farm that property. They would have serfs under them. This is in the feudal system here, and that's how the knights would operate. And so when the Lord went to battle with with another Lord or with a king or united under a king, they would call on all their knights and all their knights would come to their aid. If the Lord needed help 
or needed a bodyguard for something, the knights were there to be of assistance to them. That was the role that they played in exchange for being able to work a certain area of land. And so what happened is that as technology and fighting changed when you had things like the crossbow, for example, or other things that made the role of a knight in a battle a little less crucial, the role of knights did start to change. They had started to become more in line with the idea of a noble class, of the nobility, because they were landed. They did have this land that they worked. They had serfs under them. They had this position of authority. They were looked upon largely by society as being very reputable. And so with this, their roles did start to change from being strictly a fighting class of warriors with just some land as a reward and payment for their services to actually being a ruling class that had peasants underneath them that did do some fighting, but ruling became more of a priority of their role. That was more of a main role to them than fighting, whereas before fighting was their main role and ruling over their small fiefdom was kind of just a minor deal that came with the territory of pledging yourself to a lord to fight for him. And so with this, knights realized that they needed to fulfill these duties of ruling. And the better that they could rule, the more wealth they could secure and the more power they could secure. And they could secure a family dynasty as well and pass these things along to their children. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that through education. And so oftentimes, knights began to have their children educated, and they would need this education in order to succeed in this role of being a ruler and of managing this estate and managing the wealth that was starting to build up. And when the knights actually had some wealth, then they could pay to get their children educated. And so this was something that did spark a renewed interest in education, and it did bump the level of education up among people of this class. And so that was one thing that was going on. Now, I also mentioned the merchant class. Well, as the merchant class class was coming up, they were fairly similar to the knights. It's a similar system here where you had people that were not necessarily of noble blood, but who worked, who built wealth, who built power and influence, and ended up becoming something akin to an elite class, a ruling class, a wealthy class. And so even though they weren't technically nobility, they began to get into that role in society. And it should be probably pretty obvious here that what do you need as a merchant to be very successful? Well, obviously, you do need education. You have a need for writing, for reading, for accounting, for rhetoric. You needed this better education. And if you got a better education, you got a better job. And you were able to make more money to build your wealth, to extend your family dynasty a lot of similar aspects as this evolution of the role of knights in society. And these things did pair together and the both were part of this shift into a focus more on education than had existed prior. This was also happening with women. More women were getting educated as well. And so you had a lot of different roles in society that were shifting into being more educated, more of a focus on education. And this was affecting society as a whole. 
Factors like these did influence society as you got into the time periods of the Renaissance. And there were multiple Renaissances that happened. You had the Carolingian Renaissance in the 8th and 9th century, the Atonian Renaissance of the 10th century, and then the commonly known Italian Renaissance is kind of the the peak of this in the 15th and 16th century. That's what most people think of when they think of the Renaissance. And if I say that word, that's usually what I'm talking about here. But you can't really have a renaissance in thought without people being primed for education, for thinking, for reading, for things like this. And there are different aspects that were happening in society, different shifts that were happening that did prime people for these types of things, such as the shifts of the roles of the people in society, as I mentioned earlier. I had mentioned Greek and Roman knowledge as one of the sources that people went to during the time of the Black Death. Well, this also made a renaissance in the renaissance where people went back to Greek and Roman knowledge, Greek and Roman things in general. It was like anything old was cool. And so Greek and Roman architecture and philosophy and political thought, all kinds of things were starting to flood back in. There were different events that happened that would bring a lot of this knowledge back into areas that hadn't had it for a long time, such as when Constantinople was sacked and a lot of these books of philosophy, like ancient Greek philosophy, that no one had really read in Western Europe that was alive at the time, all of a sudden they started flooding in and it really started to change how people viewed things. It started to get incorporated into the theology of the time. And there were times when people were incorporating Plato into uh, the theology of interpreting the Bible and incorporating Aristotle and thinkers like this of the past when these great books came into society that really did impact people. They read these thoughts, these ideas, these concepts that they hadn't been exposed to before. And again, they had been primed into being more educated, more literate, more interested in these types of thoughts and concepts. And these are the things that sparked a renaissance within a society. Now to switch back over to the modern parallel, if we go back to the merchant class and to the knights and these people, these people that did not have noble blood, were not of any special importance, so to say, but ended up getting to that point, the parallel that I make with the merchant class would be big tech. And with the knights and the nobility, it's kind of that same idea. The nobility itself, I'm comparing to the corporate world, big mega corporations, but these upstarts are more like these tech companies in general that at one point in time were not that big of a deal at all. But as they started to build this new technology and shift the way that people did things in society, shift people's roles and how they worked and how they communicated, all of these types of things, they became more and more prominent more and more established, more and more respected to where now some of the largest companies in the world are these big, big tech companies. And so they have officially made that status, I would say, of being equal with the rest of the nobility, with the rest of the mega corporations around the world. Now, with the historical classes, what they needed was education in order to manage their wealth and build their wealth and secure their roles. What tech companies needed was not necessarily education, although they did need 
experience and skill when it came to the technical field, such as coding and building computers and things like this. But what these tech companies needed more than anything else, the knowledge that they really needed was just knowledge in general. It was data. It was information. They still thrive off of data. That is the currency of the internet. And as these tech companies started to get more and more data, they could incorporate that data into the projects, the businesses, the technology they produced, and they could build their wealth. They could build their power. They could solidify their position. And that was the way to do it. Now, some of the other needs that these companies had and some of the strategies that they used were things like propaganda and controlling the narrative and gaining political connections, things like this. And in order order to do these things well, they needed more data, they needed more information, and that is what they thrived on. Well, one way of getting these things is to incorporate it into your business model. And I've talked about business models and collecting data and all that kind of stuff before. So I won't get into that again. But one of the other ways is something I've also mentioned before, but that would be to buy companies and use the data and the customer base of those companies you bought out. And then you can build your empire, build your influence and your scope as a company that way by just buying out your competitors that are these smaller upstarts. So when you have an entrepreneur who comes out with this great idea, launches a product, it's a big hit, and then they get scooped up by Google or Amazon or Apple or somebody like that. Facebook buying up Oculus might be a good example of that. This happens all the time. And that is a very good strategy for building these networks, for gaining more data, more information, bettering their technology. I mentioned this strategy before talking about the nobility and how they would build their empire, their scope, their influence through marriage. And that often was a much better way of doing things than war. Well, it's the same with the tech companies here, where it is easier to gain these things that you need, namely data. It is easier to do that by buying out another company, a small upstart that's doing very well in a certain area. Let them figure it out. Let them deal with it. You can give them a great profit, and then you're going to profit much more than that by just getting that data and getting that technology. Well, that's a lot easier than dealing with the competition of the free market. If you let all these upstarts come up and become their own decently sized companies, and then they're competing and stealing stealing away your customers, stealing away market share. You're having to fight for this. You're having to lower your prices. And this competition is just a lot more difficult, a lot more economically expensive. And so it's a lot easier to avoid that by just buying them out as soon as they have a working product. They're happy because all of a sudden they're a millionaire and you are happy because you never had to deal with the competition, yet you benefited from getting all this data, getting the customers, getting the technology. And so that's a way to do it. Things like this would also happen with the merchant class and with the knights of this historical period here. Uh, a lot of the merchant families did intermarry. And so you had that aspect as well as merchants who would take over somebody else's uh, merchant route and their markets that they dealt in and they would pay somebody for that. There were some of these dynamics that did play out there as well as with the knights. It wasn't always that knights would uh, fight against other knights and then take their land. And that's not always the way it worked. That actually probably was not prominently the way it worked. But oftentimes what a knight would do would be to pledge their fealty to multiple lords. So if you pledged your fealty to one lord, you got 
got one plot of land and your service was his whenever he needed it and was going to war. Well, a lot of times you're not at war and that lord doesn't need you to fight for him. So maybe you can just pledge your fealty to another lord and hope that the time period they need you doesn't overlap and you can get even more wealth and even more land. And then you pledge yourself to another lord and then you have the crazy complication of what if lord one, lord two, and lord three end up battling each other, but you're pledged to every one of them. Yeah, it gets a little complicated there, but that is a strategy that was used. Again, it's a way of building your wealth, building your power through these types of means instead of through warfare, just like tech companies and corporations in general build their market share, build their wealth, build their influence through these other means other than competition. Again, things aren't as physical in these days. The parallel I make is physical warfare is like economic warfare in today's world. And that is what the realm of competition among companies is. And so that's the way that things play out nowadays. And we are seeing that. Well, as we skip ahead to looking at the future, looking at the technocratic aspects of that. How do you get a technocracy? Well, you have to have companies like these giant big tech companies. They have to be huge. They have to be massive. They have to be gathering huge amounts of data and information. They have to be able to analyze that, do something with it. And there can't be a whole lot of competition. It has to be fairly centralized. That's the idea of a technocracy. You might have a few different companies at the top, but in general, all of this is highly centralized and all this data is gathered together, analyzed, process together in order to make the uh, quote best decisions for society that's what's needed and it was the same way with how do you get to uh, building a nation state well it was the same way with these other groups with the classes that existed the ruling elite classes they had to solidify they had to consolidate you had to get the merchants the knights the lords the kings, you know, all these different people, you couldn't have all this competition and warfare among all these different groups. They had to come together. And that's that ended up being what happened is that they all solidified into this one entity, this nation state where you had a monarch, usually usually had a king, and then this big bureaucracy under the king, and people that had, in a sense, government contracts to do things for the king. And it was all centralized in this one entity, the nation state. And the way to do that had to have been to consolidate all this stuff together. And again, oftentimes the ways of consolidation are outside of the scope of competition or outside of warfare. And other times, some of this stuff just happens because of the way society is evolving, because of some of the trends in society. And when those trends all line up and they line up with some of these, this willful action, such as the purposeful consolidation and gaining of wealth and power and purposeful education, and all these things line up with things like technology and other aspects like that, that's when you have these big movements, these big shifts, these big events that happen in society, these big turning points. And that's what happened with the Reformation. All of these things started to line up. Everything was primed. All these different uh, aspects and layers of society were at a point where they could easily shift into something big. And that's where we are today as well, where we have all of these different things lining up from economic issues to the structure of mega corporations to the position of nations states and the divisiveness of politics in general, the technology that we have access to today, just all of these different things are lining up. And again, 
this is a turning point. Something is happening. And maybe with uh, COVID, especially COVID-19 hits and you have this big pandemic worldwide, that might actually accelerate things even more and push that shift to happen in a quicker way than it otherwise might not have. And that's the same with the Reformation. During any of these turning points in history, you have multiple big events that are happening. You have the Reformation, you have the Thirty Years' War, you have the Inquisitions that were going on, you had lots of big things that were happening. The same could be said of earlier American history, not super early, but more modern history, when you think of something like World War II and the Great Depression and things like this that were happening kind of back to back were these huge events. You had World War One, you had Great Depression, you had World War II, you had all these big things that were happening, and those were turning points in society. The Civil War might be another example, and there were lots of things coinciding with that. This is the way things happen in society. These are the cycles and patterns that happen throughout history. And so hopefully by highlighting this specific example of the Reformation, the Middle Ages, this time period, we can pick some of these things. Hopefully some of these stand out to you. You start to recognize some of these things and the shifts that are happening today. Recognize the potential of some of the positions that are in effect, maybe ones that I'm not even recognizing myself. And this can put us in a position to be able to benefit from these things, to be able to protect ourselves from some of the possible ways that this plays out. For example, I have been doing research on all of this for the past year, two years, whatever, way before coronavirus hit. And I had decided, to shift a lot of my investments into gold and crypto. And in doing so, I benefited very greatly, especially when markets started to go down and volatility started to go up and all of these things. I personally benefited from having this knowledge and information and putting some of these pieces together and being able to see how they connect. That was a benefit for me and my family. And I was able to protect us from loss, from financial loss that would have occurred otherwise. And so there are practical reasons why things like this can be beneficial to us. But with that, I am going to stop this episode here and pick up next time with another episode roughly related to education. And we'll get into things like the Reformation and historiography and scholasticism versus humanism, religious institutions and their role that they played, what education was in that period, how did people think of education, what was its purpose in different ways and for different groups. We'll talk about those types of things next time. I will remind you now as well that I am ordering another batch of Our Foundation's t-shirts. So if you want one, they are free. You just have to send me an email and let me know what you want. Give me an address to send it to, give me a size, give me, you can look at some of the patterns and colors and things that I have created. Those are rough drafts pretty much. So if you want something special, let me know. I might be able to do it. I did post a page on the website and that would be at rfoundations.podbean.com. And there I have a separate page to the drop down menu. And I think it's just labeled as t-shirts. And I have some pictures of some of the t-shirts that I created there. And so you can look at them and see what you like, what you don't like. Send me an email. Let me know if you want one. And I will add you to the order in whatever way I can reasonably do. So please do that. If you're interested, I will 
be ordering those sometime in the pretty near future, so you don't have all that much longer to place your order for that. But other than that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the patrons who are still supporting. I greatly appreciate that. Thank you for any reviews and ratings that you guys have left. I haven't seen any new reviews specifically recently, but I'll have to check on that. And if there are any, I will give you a shout out. And thank you for the people following on Twitter as well. There are a few people that have been retweeting my episode announcements and engaging on Twitter as well. So thank you for that. That definitely gives us a little more exposure, which is good. I think this information is important for people to go back and learn from and be able to apply to their own situation. So thank you. I really do appreciate that. I hope that you are enjoying this series and come back next time for the next episode. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.